Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Future of Higher Education. I'm David Feingold, your host for the podcast, and I'm here today with my good friend and colleague, Dr. David Gallus, who is the founding Chief Academic Officer and Chancellor for the Keck Graduate Institute of Applied Life Sciences, the seventh and newest of the Claremont Colleges. Today, David is principal scientist at the Pacific Northwest Research Institute in Seattle. I had the great pleasure to work with David um, and the founding of the Keck Graduate Institute when it was just getting going um, after the year 2000. And we both worked closely with Hank Riggs, who was the, the founding president and visionary who created KGI, who unfortunately passed away in 2015 and so uh, can't join us for this conversation. David, it's great to be with you today. You too, David. David, could you start out by telling us a little about your 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 background in education? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Right. Well, I grew up uh, all around the world. My father was uh, in the Air Force, and um, so I lived in many places in the U.S., but I also... Uh, uh, had some of my formative years uh, living, going to school in England. But then when I uh, when we came back to the U.S., I I've always been interested in science, and I began thinking about what I was going to do and where I was going. <laughs> so chemistry and physics was my first love. And I actually was an undergraduate in physics at the University of California at Berkeley. And then I continued and uh, got a master's and a PhD in theoretical physics. <laughs> but then I became interested in biology, and most of my research has been in biology. And I've uh, been at a number of institutions. Um, uh, in, including the University of uh, Southern California, where I was chairman of molecular biology. And uh, I did a postdoc and was research faculty at the University of Geneva in Switzerland. So uh, I have an eclectic that, background. Nice location. <laughs> and and David, it's not many people who make the... the not many folks who make the transition from theoretical physics to biology. So what, what was it that prompted you to make that change, and, and when, when did it occur in your, your education? Well, um, so let me first dispute that. There are a number of people who've gone from theoretical physics into biology, um, many of whom, when I began to make that transition, I went to visit and ask questions about <laughs> uh, Wally Gilbert, um, Max Delbrook, um, and uh, many other physicists somehow had interested in biology. I actually uh, began getting interested in biology um, just when I started my graduate work in theoretical physics, and that was mostly due to a wonderful uh, biology professor at the uh, at Berkeley, who uh, whose class I took and uh, uh, began to learn what it was all about. And I actually began my research after I got my PhD in physics, 
Um, I worked in some laboratories of a number of uh, people that I knew and got to know. Actually started doing a little experiments in biology and um, as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> so uh, I... Uh, so David, one of the interesting... Morning. Yeah. Go ahead. I was... Yeah, I was going to say one of the interesting uh, career moves you made after obviously having been at some great academic institutions was was to move to the Department of Energy um, during the Human Genome Project. Can you talk about what what drew you there and your role there in in that obviously highly consequential project? Um, yes, yes, indeed. Well, I became very interested in the idea of the Genome Project by talking to a number of my colleagues uh, around the country back <clears throat> back in the mid-'80s, um, and um, it became clear that that was something that could be done. And I, I got asked to, uh, to um, chair a committee to... Um, 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 look at and make recommendations to the um, segment of the Department of Energy called Biological and Environmental Research, which uh, currently then had uh, some funding for the Genome Project. And uh, one thing led to another, and they asked me to lead that section. And that was uh, a real um, opportunity because not only was it the was the genome project uh, under that uh, uh, component, but um, there was an awful lot of other biology uh, that was related to, and there was also the climate um, climate change uh, segment was under that. And then that was a that was a real experience for me because um, because of the science because of uh, uh, the uh, the complexity of that but also I mean if the the total budget that was under um, the control of my uh, directorate there was about five hundred million dollars a year and so I learned a lot about. Uh, how such things work, and I also learned a lot about how government works. <laughs> I'm sure pl plenty of stories there. So, so when in that sequence did you first meet Hank Riggs, and how did that come about? Ah, well, that after uh, Department of Energy, I uh, I co-founded uh, a biotech company in Seattle, and was uh, was working. As uh, the uh, uh, as the president of of that company, and um, um, one day I got a call from someone I'd never met named Hank Riggs, <laughs> and um, and that was very interesting. And he explained to me his vision about starting a new uh, institution. <clears throat> and related, <coughs> excuse me, related um, a little bit about his history, which is also very, very interesting. And uh, he was clearly a, uh, a consequential educator, having 
most recently then been the uh, president of Harvey Mudd College, but had also secured a $50 million grant from the Keck Foundation to, uh, to carry out this vision. And he invited me to come down to Claremont and help him do this. I, I was intrigued and didn't immediately agree to do that, because, uh, but I, I certainly was intrigued and began thinking about it. He came up to Seattle to visit, and we spent a lot of time together. And um, the 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 long and short of it is, he convinced me that this idea he had of uh, uh, about uh, applied life sciences and as an educational objective was uh, was something that was actually worth doing. And since I had both been a a, uh, a basic scientist, as well as a uh, running a biotech company and doing science therein, I understood the need for people who knew about um, how to uh, how to commercialize uh, uh, biotechnology, as well as those who knew how to actually uh, um, create the science and technology, and. Um, so I was I was quite intrigued and uh, finally agreed that this was something I was quite interested in in helping him do, and so uh, um, I did agree to to join him as uh, as kind of the co-founder, uh, and I was to handle the uh, the uh, academic components, the uh, the uh, uh, the curriculum, the hiring of the faculty, and just generally putting together the academic pieces where as Hank was going to um, be the uh, be the president, be the leader, and uh, um, uh, we were going to work together as partners and start this institution. So shortly after that, I went down to Claremont. And, and David, how, how did Hank first uh, get put? Happen to be put in touch with you? How did did you have a mutual contact or acquaintance that that um, sort of made the match? Or? No, um, uh, Hank. Well, it's a it's a good question. He he somehow found out about me. I think I think he started looking around for. Um, 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 yeah, he, he talked to a number of people and I'm not, he never really told me who he talked to, but he said he, he, he had heard about me and he, he liked the fact that I had my, uh, had my background both in academics and in, uh, biotech. Right. And, and David, um, Hank, as you mentioned, it was, a he was a very persuasive character, um, but but he, but it was also an interesting vision. Here he was creating a life science institute, but his background was as an engineer. He, he'd raised the first billion dollar campaign when he was at Stanford. He'd yeah. run Harvey Mudd College, but he didn't seem to be a natural person to launch a life science institute. Did he share what was it that was prompting this vision and had led him to get the 50 million dollars from the Keck Foundation? 
Yes, well, that was, um, as you said, that was around uh, uh, the uh, 1998 and uh, and then to 2000 in that era. And that, um, in the previous couple of decades, it had become clear to people like Hank that um, biotechnology was going to be a major force in society as well as uh, provide uh, a wide range of new opportunities and technologies as well as uh, um, impact society. And I think so that so in talking to Hank about that, I think that vision or that realization of how important um, the biological sciences were in uh, in both the economy and the potential impact on society through health and medicine, that really inspired him. And uh, I think that became something that he he could he could articulate that he just had then uh, and be and was able to convince uh, Robert Day at the uh, Keck Foundation that uh, this was uh, something worth uh, worth doing because this was going to enable or help enable the. Um, um, the the real impact that biotechnology would have and simply uh, the academic uh, and uh, basic science component was important but not enough i think that was his uh, that was his realization which uh, was was really interesting and because he had as you said i mean he had gone not only was he um an engineer, but he, he was, um, I mean, Harvard Business School was uh, <laughs> in his background as well, and he understood yeah. the difference between um, the uh, creation of technologies and the commercialization very well. So he, uh, he was, uh, yeah, I thought his vision was really an exciting one. Because I had, as a biotech uh, uh, CEO, and uh, <laughs> I had realized that people that understood both sides of the picture, the commercialization as well as the basic science, were incredibly valuable and also very rare. <laughs> so I had the, uh, uh, right. he convinced me right away that that was a good thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, as, as I recall the vision, he talked about, you know, we have all of these PhD scientists who have the depth there. We have MBAs who don't necessarily know a lot about the science, and we need the people who can bridge between the two, run these projects, integrate it, you know, help to create these new startups. And, and you know, I think that that, that vision has largely been borne out. Um, as you came on board with that initial pot of money and the vision, um, how much of the rest of how to do this had been worked out or or was that still pretty much a blank slate so for example had had it already been determined it would be graduate as opposed to undergraduate since most of the claremont colleges 
to that time had been had been at the undergraduate level. Right. Um, yeah, it had Hank had um, Hank had thought it was really important for it to be a graduate institution, and uh, and I agreed with that. Have with my experience uh, as well. So we talked about that at the beginning. Um, so it was Hank's idea to make it a graduate institution. I agreed, and so that's where we began. And and when as you were trying to put together this model, and and Hank was, what did you have any other institutions in mind that that you you looked at? Not necessarily in the life sciences, but creating startups in higher ed is is pretty rare, right? <laughs> and so the Claremont colleges hadn't done one since the nineteen sixties. Um, with Pitzer College. And so I know part of Hank's vision was to add one to that and keep that legacy of, of colleges going. Were, were there were models or things you had in mind that helped to guide the building of KGI? Well, um, no. <laughs> in short, I didn't, I didn't really, uh, I couldn't think of any, any real models. Of course, every college Every institution that has started had a beginning, <laughs> and so um, and so there were things about starting uh, an institution that were um, that were well worn, <laughs> but um, but no, I really didn't have an idea. However, the I have to say the. Um, the idea of starting something new like this um, was just really exciting because for the very reason that it had never been done before. Um, and I, I knew a lot about um, um, graduate education in the sciences and how, how that worked and how important that was going to be. And I wanted the Keck Graduate Institute to have a lot of basic science, uh, both in its curriculum, but also um, that uh, the faculty would also uh, do research to some extent. Uh, uh, and so it was, uh, there was no real uh, model, but... What had to, the components that were going to have to emerge were kind of clear. <laughs> and so. I've had the pleasure for the podcast to talk with Rick Miller, the, the founding president of the Olin College of Engineering. And oh, he oh. drew a lot from Hank Riggs. And, now, now and Hank, Hank mentioned the Olin College, actually. Yeah. That was one of his models. Um, and... Uh, um, and the the really surprising thing there was that um, I mean they had they had another foundation that was dedicated to uh, um, bioengineering that really uh, was uh, uh, behind them as well, and so that was it was that was an interesting potential metaphor, <laughs> yeah. but. Uh, and, and, I actually, and they actually came a few years after KGI, but but they got Hank on the board to help in, in the guiding of that. But one of the things that's common to the two, which I thought was interesting, is that, you know, Olin chose to locate 
right next to Babson and Wellesley because it was very focused and specialized, but was able to draw from them. That was particularly important in their case because they were undergraduate. And so, you know, being small in that way, they were able to leverage the liberal arts and the business and entrepreneurship. For KGI, how important do you think was it being part of the Claremont Consortium in terms of those early years? Were there benefits from that? Were there challenges posed by that in terms of creating this new institution within this seven college consortium? Well, I think there were both uh, advantages and uh, challenges, yes. Um, the uh, the advantages were that the uh, overall, the Claremont colleges have a really high quality uh, and very high standards when it comes to educational uh, uh, um, uh, efforts. They, uh, and so, um, and they also had a number of people who were um, uh, very uh, um, um, versed in various aspects of what we wanted to do. There weren't any, uh, uh, I don't think there were any PhD uh, biologists in the, uh, in the group. There must have been one or two somewhere, but I didn't meet any of them right away. And there was in Harvey Mudd. There was a lot of there were a lot of good scientists and uh, very good science educators, and that was that was uh, useful. And the Claremont graduate, uh, 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 university university, yep, was a uh, um, also had uh, uh, some of the. since they were part of the colleges and they were they were the only other graduate uh, institution, they were the only other institution that had any graduate activities actually. Yes. Um, so uh, that was that was an advantage and was useful to talk to some of those people. The disadvantages were uh, had to do with things like their um, uh, there was some resentment. Uh, of the foundation of the KGI, and that um, some of it was kind of inchoate, uh, and some of it was focused on things like uh, Hank and I discussed uh, and uh, decided that the idea of tenure uh, was not a good idea, and that one could handle the uh, the the things that tenure was supposed to do in other ways. Uh, and uh, I still believe that, uh, but that was, uh, that was anathema in the uh, Claremont Colleges. And uh, uh, as the chief academic officer, uh, I went to several uh, of the colleges and spoke to their faculty about this problem. And uh, um, I, uh, I I experienced uh, still have the scars to show for it. In some cases, uh, that was pretty tough. They were uh, not uniformly. There were a few people who really understood that and were willing to to see how it worked, and others that were absolutely outraged. <laughs> 
and uh, thought this was the craziest and most awful thing they'd ever heard. Uh, so uh, that was uh, uh, those were those were challenges. But actually, those were not much in the way of challenges. It just the only thing that it really did. It really had little effect on us whether or not we were resented because we could do what we wanted to do. But what it did do in some cases was to um, dampen our ability to collaborate effectively with some of those colleges. Right. And, and probably one of Harvey the, Mudd, you know, the, the, the logics was, yeah. Probably Harvey I was going to say that as I understood. From, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, were, just, uh, just that, you know, it wasn't just that tenure, you know, you can debate its merits, but that particularly with a startup institution in a field that was changing so rapidly, um, where it was difficult to predict what it was going to look like even a decade ahead, that it was hard to imagine doing hiring on tenure in that context. And so I think there was a, there was a good logic for why, you know, as you're starting this up, in the same way when you're starting a biotech startup, right, you, you've got to have the flexibility there to adapt as 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 you learn and the the technology evolves. Right, right, yeah, and it it um, so I and I I actually thought that um, and are and argued not very effectively in most cases, but <laughs> I argued uh, with the uh, with the other faculty that in fact they have. They have a contract with their um, institutions, but they have uh, never, most cases, they've never bothered to write it down, so they really don't know what it is. And wouldn't it be better just to draw up contracts that described exactly what the college, uh, what the institution owed these faculty members and what they owed the institution. And um, uh, I, I think that appealed to some people, uh, but to most that fell on deaf ears. <laughs> yeah. D David, can you share a little about, you touched on the fact of, of trying to do bridge builders and, and an interdisciplinary approach without a lot of models to be able to look at, what, what were some of the core elements as you, you put together what the KGI curriculum and education would look like? Right. Well, since we were, the life sciences were the core science, but the, uh, the, uh, the management, the uh, um, understanding of, uh, some of the key aspects of uh, of how a business is run and how commercialization takes place were the other components. And so that was where we started. What do we need to bring in? So how much how much do the um, uh, do the do the uh, uh, people who are in uh, on the business side? How much science do they really need to know, uh, and uh, how much of the business components and management do the science uh, um, promulgators, uh, creators need to know? And I think the um, 
uh, I think it became really clear as we began to, or as I started thinking about the curriculum, um, was that um, um, the number of things that it was useful for people to know was very long list. <laughs> uh, and so... Uh, and in some cases, that made it very, very difficult to put together a curriculum because it was the list was a little too long. And so we were challenged, as uh, as I think uh, you well know, <laughs> with the idea of how do you um, how do you bring um, these things together in effective ways? What kind of uh, what kind of uh, activities, what kind of curriculum uh, would make sense? Uh, obviously, you have to have some courses, but it, it, uh, the idea that it had to be just courses, I think, became clear to me. And my, my idea was that actually uh, one of my early ideas about this is let's figure out how to set up activities that would mimic some of the things that people would have to do. And now you can't, um, uh, in a biotech company, for example, um, what, what would be, uh, so how do you manage a project? Um, how to manage a project is the, is the, uh, uh, is the subject of a lot of business school management courses. But here, what we really meant is, are there any special aspects to the life sciences uh, component or the life science feature of, uh, of these kinds of projects? And indeed, indeed there were. Um, they had to do with things like patents. They had to do with things like ethics. and. Uh, um, um, uh, the interface with medicine and health and healthcare and medicine, and uh, um, yeah, there's so there's so many. Uh, once you begin to think about what actually goes on in a biotech company, it became uh, clear that there were both a lot of opportunities to pull together. Um, um, activities as part of the uh, learning experience that were in fact uh, interdisciplinary in a in the broadest sense <laughs> and uh, um, that would be uh, really useful but that also there were enormous challenges um, to um, fitting this into a curriculum in a way that made sense so it could be carried out, and that it could, uh, uh, you could, uh, uh, well, that it could be done. And then, actually, um, the, there were challenges on the other side of that coin, um, and that had to do with how, how, for the business people, the people that um, were uh, learning the the. The management, the finance, the uh, the patents, and so forth, and <clears throat> if we can do that 
to the science um, with the people that were uh, being educated in science, how much science uh, and how do you uh, how do you um, take what could be viewed as uh, MBA like students and how do you how do you teach them enough science so that it was useful on the one hand and that it was wouldn't completely um, swamp their uh, capabilities in both time and uh, 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 background to deal with. So there was uh, there were a lot of uh, a lot of challenges in thinking about this curriculum, as you well know, because you were involved in it <laughs> after a while. <laughs> but the initial well, thought was I remember when we, Hank. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. You remember? I, I was saying I, I remember when Hank came to see me. I was on the faculty at USC and said, you know, would you be interested in coming up and teaching to our first class? And so I did that as you know, as an adjunct professor, uh, you know, in my field of designing high-performance organizations, little knowing that his, you know, hidden agenda was to then hire me to to build the business and ethics side of that <laughs> curriculum, which, like you, was was a great opportunity, and and the students really sold it. I, I remember a couple of the elements that were really distinctive about the education that sort of speak to the point you were mentioning. What first was that? idea where just when these students arrived, we would throw them in on the deep end in teams with relatively little guidance to learn as much as they could about one of those early biotech startups and the technology it was based on. And so I think that was a a nice example of that kind of simulation you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. No, there were, uh, no, I think, uh, actually, um, Designing, or the or the the least the uh, components of that first curriculum was was really exciting and interesting, and I think um, I think I think you are well aware when as we as I began to hire the faculty, one of the first things we they they quickly realized they were going to have to do was help me design this curriculum and uh um putting hiring somebody usually involves telling them what they're going to do and uh um so you could only do that up to a point and the rest you said and then you're going to have to make it up <laughs> you're going to have to figure it out <laughs> So, David, say a little more about what you were looking for in hiring the faculty, because as you say, this wasn't an an easy sell necessarily. You were hiring people who were often early in their careers, though some were more experienced. You didn't weren't offering tenure. It was an institution that even though it had 50 million dollars, nobody was quite sure whether this would work or not. And you know, yeah. you were asking them to do research as well as to build this curriculum and teach. So it was a lot from people who were used to, you know, more traditional higher ed, you know, here's your lab and you can you can do your own thing. So so who did you look for and what was the what was sort of the the, the way you went about building this founding faculty? Yes, let me 
I will answer that question, but let me let me just um, uh, add right at the beginning that I remember you mentioned the fifty million dollars, and right at the beginning, I think that was one of the first conversations I had with Hank. Um, it was my view, which I expressed to Hank, and he eventually came to to um, realize that $50 million was not nearly enough. <laughs> so we're going to start a new institution, entirely new institution on $50 million. And, but um, um, Hank initially really thought that was plenty. Uh, but then I think he came to realize that, um, yeah, maybe, maybe not. And it depend, it was going to depend on just how ambitious we were. (laughs) Well, as to your question about the faculty, um, um, I think there's, there's no one, there's no one answer to the question of what kind of faculty we're looking for because I were looking I was looking for people with um uh with some uh um <clears throat> with a variety of backgrounds because we had to bring together people with a variety of backgrounds and have them work together. So one of the things I looked for in talking to people was people that I thought actually could work together and could work with me. Uh, and that is a completely different uh, axis <laughs> than uh, uh, looking at their uh, academic or teaching or, uh, or scientific credentials. But on the other hand, I did want to have a faculty that had some scientific uh, um, it had some real scientific uh, uh, weight that they could, uh, um, um, because at the time, uh, this uh, this field, um, <clears throat> applied life science was not just applying life science. It was applying a um, things that were emerging constantly and opportunities that were being presented to um, to people and institutions in a very dynamic way. And things were changing in the science very, very quickly um, so that um, um, I wanted faculty who were appreciative of that and who uh, ideally were actually on the front and could and I I do remember um, the um, that the first thing I I looked for was someone who had actually had some. I was looking well. Actually, when I arrived in Claremont, <laughs> Hank had, unbeknownst to me, uh, by then he had advertised for uh, faculty. Oh. <laughs> He had, he had put out an ad, and so he had a, a list of applications and a pile of applications. <clears throat> so one of the first things he said to me was, hey, here's, 
here's the stack of uh, applications. Any, see if there are any good ones here. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave and, you a head start. He'd already got, done some prospecting. <laughs> so that that was a that was a really interesting year um, of um, meeting, talking to. And so one of the first people I hired, or the first person I hired, uh, was Greg Dewey. And the thing that appealed to me about Greg, and Greg was one of those people that I found in the stack of applications. (laughs) And Greg had actually been a department chairman. And since I had also been a department chairman, I know what you learn <laughs> as department chairmans. And I thought, if Greg has learned this, he's a faculty member that I would like to start with. <laughs> so, And Greg was also a good scientist. And he was doing really interesting science in an area that was a little different from anything that... Uh, um, um, uh, was common in those days. He he was a he was a chemist. He was interested in mathematics as well, and uh, and there were a variety of uh, of his cross disciplines, as well as his experience uh, in uh, uh, academia, um, academic administration, which uh, was uh, was very appealing. And then when I when Greg came out and talked and we met, it was clear that he was somebody we I could work with, and that proved to be the case. So, um, Great. and I continued on those lines, to, uh, but um, I never found, I didn't find many people that had any real academic uh, administration experience. Greg was the the first and and probably the only one <clears throat> um, who had enough experience in the uh, in doing things uh, in the uh, <clears throat> excuse me in the administrative side that I thought would be useful for useful experience for uh, KGI, but. Uh, <clears throat> But there are a lot of um, a lot of, and obviously, um, as you mentioned earlier, obviously I needed to hire a number of people with experience, uh, not uh, not just um, junior faculty starting out. Um, you, uh, you can't start a new institution with just junior faculty. Um, but um, we did need a lot of people who were um, of that uh, uh, of that frame of mind that is uh, coming in and uh, realizing what they were to do was to start something <laughs> and start their own research as well. And uh, a number of people uh, uh, then appealed to... Uh, appealed to me as as faculty members for usually for very different reasons and uh so and then we ended up with the faculty that you knew well <laughs> yeah. and david what one of the 
you know, initially, uh, as with the other Claremont colleges, um, the institute had been given uh, 10 acres on which to build its campus. But um, to get going, it had purchased an existing set of buildings, um, which eventually uh, became its home. Was the decision to stay there and to buy those buildings rather than to, to build, was that driven by the realization that $50 million doesn't go as far as you thought and it was going to be a lot less expensive that way? Or, or was it simply the practical reality of getting started? Or, Well, it was, it was a bit of both. Um, and, um, yeah, I think having to build the buildings that were needed, I mean, we needed laboratories, for one thing, which is much more expensive than classrooms and offices. Um, and that was, uh, that was, a. Uh, I think we could have easily blown the whole 50 million on a few buildings <laughs> and, uh, um, been, uh, very, uh, um, been very restrictive, but Hank and I started looking around. Hank had, Hank had come across this, uh, the place, which is their home now. And, so I do remember going through it and realizing that um, those those buildings were um, could be easily uh, modified and adapted into things that we really needed, and we could do it not only less expensively, but we could do it quickly. And I think quickly was also really important. The uh, the idea of um, actually starting such an institution, I was beginning to to uh, hire faculty, and uh, we needed a place. Uh, we needed to begin to uh, uh, as we put together this curriculum, or as I started thinking about the curriculum, it was clearly we were going to need some laboratory courses. We were going to need some places for people to carry out um, their the faculty to carry out the research, and probably for students to carry out uh, various kinds of uh, projects. And uh, so, um, starting from scratch, building buildings um, was simply not. It wouldn't be possible to meet our own time. Uh, schedule to do it that way so off we went another thing i should mention david yeah go ahead go ahead well i was gonna say i I was gonna change i was gonna change the subject a little bit (laughs) and that's fine i i i was thinking about uh you know prior to this uh call the other day i was starting to think about what do I remember about KGI? And I, I did remember, in fact, that one of the early things that um, um, uh, was Im- important was um, Hank had pulled together an advisory committee. And uh, there were some really good people on that advisory committee. And it was them that we we used them to bounce off the ideas uh the practical as well as the conceptual ideas about 
uh, what KGI would become. And so I was able to, uh, to uh, um, bounce off of, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember his name, Frank. Uh, oh, he was a, 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 he was a, a president of Cornell. Frank? Frank Rhodes. Frank Rhodes. Thank you. It's coming back. <laughs> yeah, Frank Rhodes yep. was on that advisory committee, <clears throat> for example, and he was the quality. Yep. I think person a number of prominent. Ac- yeah, he was the quality. He, he he had that quality of person was people that Hank had been able to convince to to uh, to come on and and uh, um, give us advice, and so. I was able to do such things as talk to Frank Rhodes about this is what I had in mind. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think two of the things that seemed to be really crucial in those early days was having a, a really first class advisory board and then also building up a board of trustees of some real leaders from the industry that would be hiring the future graduates and also providing opportunities there. And th- th- those they obviously provided not just financial support, but also real guidance in ensuring that what we were educating for was going to fit the needs of, of industry, right? Well, um, yeah, that I, actually, I don't think that worked quite that way. Um, I think, I think, I think the, um, you know, representing industry I think, I think to some extent you're right. To some extent, they reminded us from time to time, oh, yeah, this is necessary. But most of the things uh, we knew pretty well. And so, um, the, uh, in fact, occasionally, I think people in the industry, um, since the industry probably had gaps as well in its ability to uh, or to marshal people that knew enough of the science and the business together. They, they were lacking those people in sometimes in the leadership, but most often in the lower, um, 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 lower uh, ranks of uh, employees, but, um, and sometimes the people that end up on boards of directors (laughs) actually are not close enough to what actually happens in the, uh, in the uh, biotech companies to be able to provide the kind of guidance that you've described. (laughs) Yep. And, and of course, one of the challenges of building something really new is the job ads out there, none of them said we, we are want, looking to hire an MBS grad, which is what we call the degree, <laughs> right? They were looking to hire PhDs or masters in science or MBAs, and yeah. we, were, we were creating something new to, to, to fill that gap. Yeah. Another core element of the model, David, was, was that we did borrow and adapt from Harvey Mudd was the idea of the capstone project. And that was interesting, right, in terms of bringing together all of the elements of what students were learning in a final project. 
but also as a revenue stream, right? Because like at Harvey Mudd, we were asking the companies to, to pay for the delivery of a, of a project, whether it's a, a product or a, an analysis that would be of real value to them. So is that something in terms of the learnings from Harvey Mudd and, and the early model that you think worked well? Um, I think that worked well, but um, I must say, I don't remember taking that from Harvey Mudd. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, in retrospect, I see that Harvey Mudd did a similar thing, um, and that may have been one of the first, I may have heard that first from them, but I just don't remember that. I Right. I thought that was just a terrific idea, and I do remember uh, advocating that uh, with the faculty, and then with uh, and with Hank and and uh, the, the board of directors. But um, I was I think, assuming with Hank having led Harvey Mudd for ten years, that that was part of what he brought with him when he came over was was knowing that that worked well. Um, not that I recall. But uh, he was certainly supportive. Um, I I remember, in fact, uh, talking to the, to the faculty and the board. There was a lot of pushback about how could that possibly work <laughs> from the uh, from the board side, saying, "Well, how how are you going to get companies to pay for a bunch of wet behind the ears?" Uh, uh, students to to do something that um, is going to be useful to them, and uh, and uh, from the faculty saying, um, well, you know, the students are going to be able to do a number of things, but there's a question about whether or not um, their level of expertise. It can be matched properly to uh, the right projects that would either lead them to learn a lot or to actually be useful. So, um, and in fact, uh, no, I think that was that was one of the cool ideas that uh, um, that we had, and uh, um, I think it I think it actually did work enormously, and. Uh, <laughs> I do remember a number of cases where it didn't work so well. <laughs> well, like like any experiment, there are going to be ones that work and and ones that don't as well, right? Right from the outset, David, one of the the parts of the model that you were heavily involved with was actually creating spin out companies from KGI. That happened early in its development. Um, can you say a little bit about, you know, was that something that you saw as separate from the educational enterprise, integrated to it? Um, well, um, I think the concept of uh, being able to spin out a company from, uh, from KGI was uh, certainly agreeable in several ways. One is it would be a terrific educational um, vehicle on the one hand it could uh, lead to uh, revenues downstream which was also very attractive to us at that time <laughs> uh, 
and uh, and the idea of uh, um, giving faculty members the opportunities to um, take technologies that were emerging from their laboratories and uh, applying them was uh, very much in the in the spirit of what we were trying to do. So, yeah, that was. Uh, that was a really important uh, um, component uh, conceptually, but you know, as you well know, actually having it happen is uh, that that requires a lot of uh, uh, of convergence <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and uh, um, yes, so <clears throat> and then of course we went through. Uh, with the um, with the uh, um, entrepreneurship course the, that that uh, started out, I think Bob Curry and I gave for a while. That was kind of um, uh, practice for exactly those kinds of things. Saying, "Look, if you have this technology or these patents, uh, how?" How are you going to actually make a company? <laughs> and I know you guys through your networks were able to bring in lots of real-world examples of things that had both worked and not for the students to learn from. Yes, yeah, that was that was fun. I do remember. <clears throat> yeah, I I fondly remember some of those uh, um, some of those. Uh, uh, <clears throat> um, course sessions, lectures, and so forth. And um, I know I had, uh, from Darwin Molecular in Seattle, I had experience uh, with um, um, not only starting a company, but <clears throat> moving through the, moving through the, the uh, process of uh, uh, trying to get to uh, uh, products, and I remember giving a, a lecture about some of the basic genetics we had done on the, on particularly on the bone, um, uh, bone uh, density project, <clears throat> which was, by the way, two years ago, FDA approved. <laughs> <laughs> a, a long and winding road, but it got there. Yeah. But I do remember giving that lecture and explaining how the basic science uh, ground through to and how we were thinking about it and what we did and and all of those uh, all of the ins and outs. And then uh, two years ago, um, getting a call from one of our first year students. <laughs> I don't know whether I told you about this. Our one of our first year students. Uh, Mark Dobler, who uh, was at Amgen. Yep, I remember and, Mark and Gene well. And Mark, uh, Mark uh, sent me a message saying, uh, when that uh, FDA approval came, he said, uh, "I remember your lecture about <laughs> the basic science here, and by the way." I was the manager for that this project at Amgen. <laughs> wow. So it really does come full circle. And 
course, that was also a, a different form of success because Mark and Jean, who were two members of our first class, ended up getting married. So not just good jobs at Amgen, but uh, but 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 a nice uh, bringing together of people. Um, yes, indeed. How how did you and Hank think about how you would judge whether this experiment was a success? What were the the measures you were thinking about for 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 KGI and weighing this experiment? Oh, that's a that's a great question, and of course, we thought about that, and I think the. Um, uh, um, I think most of our initial ideas were not good <laughs> <laughs> about how to do that, but I think um, um, I think ultimately we ended up deciding that um, if we produced um, classes of students who were hired by industry. <laughs> and were successful in what they did, um, we would know that we'd done the right thing. Um, that, that was one aspect. But then as time goes on, there's all these things you've mentioned. Uh, every one of those is a potential measure, right? You could say, well, um, uh, spin-out companies, that's, that's a possible measure. Um, the hiring of our students, that's another. Um, the um, um, faculty research that leads to uh, uh, licensable uh, uh, technologies, that's also, uh, that's also useful. Um, but I think the, f- the first two were things like the... Uh, um, just the success of our students was probably the uh, the primary measure, and and gauging right. how the students were successful has got a variety of components. But you know, seeing them have uh, um, fruitful careers in the uh, life sciences industries is uh, is certainly. Uh, um, is certainly the main thing, and there I think now looking back on it, just the ones that I know about, there's certainly been quite a few that have been very successful. So, um, in that sense, I think it worked. <laughs> yeah. and, the question and the institution, is, yeah. Well, you know, the big proved- question is since since the life sciences and the life sciences industries are continually changing, the question is, what's going to constitute continuing success? I suppose the success of the students will always be uh, the the major major thing, but the uh, um, other manifestations can be all over the place. (laughs) And, you know, the institution has we'd hoped, I think, has been adaptable. They, they've added a, a pharmacy school for the biotech industry. They, they've, they've fostered an, another startup, the Minerva Project, that's trying a very different model of higher ed in, globally and virtually. And so, so I, it, it's nice that the entrepreneurialism has, has continued. One big transition for any startup is, is when the, the founder leaves. Um, 
I think many of us were surprised when Hank stepped away as early as he did, um, yes. you know, in the start of KGI. Can you share anything about, you know, that decision, you know, and and what you knew of it and how it came? Well, I know Hank had, Hank had talked about, from the very beginning, Hank had, had talked about giving um, a certain number of years to the project. And I know Gail was, uh, uh, <laughs> was anxious to... Uh, have it not be limitless. <laughs> um, so it it was a surprise to me when he decided to do that, but he did remind me that that's what he talked about from the beginning, within to within a couple of years, and I I had to agree, uh, and. Uh, and because he had done so much for the institution and for me, and now this was, this was like his third major uh, career phase. There was Stanford, there was uh, uh, Harvey Mudd, and now KGI. <laughs> yeah, and along the way, running a company there for a while. So yeah, no, he had he had a, a number of successful chapters. Yeah. Um, David, just as a final question, when you look back and you think about for for other higher ed entrepreneurs out there who are trying to start a new model of higher ed, um, any lessons you would draw in terms of, you know, you, you guys really, you know, had to make it up as you went along? Um, <laughs> uh, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a perplexing question. What do I, you know, what do I, what lessons do I draw from the years <laughs> of, of doing this? And um, I think the, um, I think one of the, one of the first lessons that I would, I would draw and, and one of the things that I would pass on is that the, um, the, the potential innovations the creativity that is possible, I think, is probably going to exceed anybody who's doing this as an initial assessment. There's an awful lot that can be done. There's an awful lot that can be done. And so the, um, the uh, um, innovations that go beyond what we know about uh, in the way of uh, educational uh institutions and their uh and their uh, uh protocols um that that there's an awful lot so um yeah you you can do a lot of different things so that would be the first lesson the second one would would be i think and this is true for any institution so it's not really novel but the initial um the people involved initially are going to be the the absolute key to it, and so um, I think I was uh, fortunate in hiring the initial faculty, and they were they were a, a very heterogeneous group, very heterogeneous, and differing in their in their ambitions and their talents, 
but nonetheless, I think they fit together well, and they work together well, and they produced an institution that actually uh, uh, seemed to work. <laughs> yep. So um, yeah, and, and and were great fun to work with at the same time, and was great fun. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's the other lesson <laughs> that you can't have fun doing this. Have fun along the way. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for taking so much time. Uh, my best to, to Diane and hope you are uh, uh, doing very well and not too much longer. Love, Look forward to visiting you in Seattle. Um, good to talk to you, David. Thanks. And it was, it was, I have to say it was fun thinking back uh, and, and trying to remember uh, the, uh, the people and the, and the, um, uh, uh, what we did, uh, that was, that was a lot of fun. I have to say, I was, um, I was looking up, um, by the way, some of the, uh, initial board members, the people I first met when Hank brought me down to meet the board. And, um, uh, I remember a number of people, but I, um, I have to say one of the people that, that I, I, I spent a little time reminiscing about was um, uh, Jim Weinberg. Oh, Jim gosh, Weinberg yes. was the founding chairman of the board. Who uh, and, and Jim is, as uh, the name, <laughs> the Weinberg name, of course, goes with Goldman Sachs. <laughs> As and Jim, but Jim was a remarkable uh, individual, both a uh, a really inspirational leader and a uh, and uh, uh, a smart and uh, very kind and uh, uh, um, uh, was he was he was a that was a that was a great chairman to have in that initial board. I have to say. Yeah, yeah. As you noted, the fifty million wasn't enough. So having people like Jim on board was was important <laughs> for getting that additional cash. Well, and and that's David. You remind me of one other thing I did want to bring up is the first thing that Hank and I did um, was to start going around going around Los Angeles and the. In Southern California, and raising money, and that was something I had no experience of doing. Uh, certainly, for an academic institution, I'd raise money for a biotech. <laughs> That's a different story. But uh, but but being with Hank in and having uh, you know going from uh, place to place, from person to person, and being with Hank. And asking for money for this institution was was a great experience. And uh, the uh, the thing that surprised me an enormous amount was that we were pretty successful. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Hank, you may have been new to it, but Hank had a lot of experience with that from Stanford and Harvey. He Bunn, did so indeed. Def- he did indeed. Definitely something he brought to the table. He was really he was good at that, and I must say, I. Uh, uh, I really appreciated it at the time because I knew 
how much money we needed. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that, that, it's been great fun, David. Thank you so much. Thank you.